Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. I've gotten in uh, some pretty good arguments with uh, other reenactors because, and, and reenactors can take this for what it's worth, and I'm going to say it because this is my passion, and I live for the, uh, for the field kitchen, is if you're going to do it, you strive for 100%. And we know because we we call ourselves living historians. And the reason I say living historians instead of using the word reenactor, a reenactor to some degree, and, and it's a, a, a large group of them, will only take their impression only so far, and that's where it stops. They don't do research every day like we do. They only live from one reenactment to another one where we live at 365 days a year. We're constantly researching photos, manuals, videos from World War II. Uh, We talk to the veterans that were cooks in World War II. Uh, We get their pictures, their stories. We read anything that we can get on the mess halls and the supplies for the food. And we make our own labels. We make our... A lot of the stuff we we make ourselves. And so, to me, we strive for 100% knowing that we never probably will get to an exact 100%, but we're always striving because when you stop striving for 100%, you start going backwards. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. And sadly, that was a clip from episode 46 featuring Brian Cookie Vineyard. Um, He was a member of the Tri-State Living History Association who specialized in authentic error-correct field kitchens. But I think uh, one Jeff Copsetta would be more poignant to uh, talk a little more about that. How you doing, Jeff? Yeah, good, good. It's 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 tough to to start what's going to be a great episode that way, but but uh, I'm glad that we got to do it. Yeah, Byron was there affectionately known as Cookie, uh, was just, what an incredible guy. I'm, Don, I'm so glad that you got to travel to meet him. Uh, he, uh, I know his son very well. His son is a really good friend of mine, and, and his son is a great living historian in his own right. Uh, you know, been in the museum field for a while and, and marketing, and the, that guy, he, he's jumped into Normandy, uh, I think back, uh, I want to say, for the 65th. I'm not exactly sure. It's been it's been some time now, probably 10, 10 or so years. Um, but but his son Brandon's uh, just just like I said, a real good buddy of mine. When I heard that his dad had finally uh, had passed, was you know we kind of saw it coming. It was not like a shocker. Uh, you know, I I, I I talked to Brandon right before Christmas, and he said you know it's within weeks. Um, so that that's tough. You know, yeah. anytime you lose somebody like that, lose a parent, and and the living history world uh, really it's a big hole because Mm -hmm. uh cookie would set up one incredibly complete field kitchen every ingredient everything authentic for everything that he would cook and he'd set up you know up there in in illinois uh he brought his camp down to texas a couple times for us i mean just an incredible just what a production and it just lends so much more realism you know those things that we strive for you you could your uniform could be great everything you know everything you know, and then you go and, and get a, you know, a, a cheeseburger from somewhere. Yeah, you know, right. It's not the same. It's not the same. But when you were in a chow line and you're handed a, 
you know, a tray or a canteen cup and, and a spoon and you go through and they slop it on there yep. and you shovel it down and then you're dumping in the water and the hot water and the soap, scrubbing it out, hanging it up. You know, I mean, it was a, it was a regular field kitchen. Like we were just, just pulled off the line, you know, and it was just, it's just an incredible guy. I'm just so happy. I got to meet him and learn from him. And, and Don, I'm so happy that you got to do the same and, and we can immortalize him here on, on our, on our podcast. And in that interview, he took great pride in the fact that they were one of the few outfits that didn't upgrade their field stoves to propane. He still used <laughs> gasoline and he took great pride in that. But what we're going to do, we're going to make this a two part episode for the download, not on YouTube, but download. So once you guys listen to this fantastic normal episode of part one, part two um because his byron's original interview was a part of a two-part episode meaning we had two guests on that and so what i've done is isolated his full interview and so when you go on your podcast app you'll see uh the episode for tonight episode 106 uh part one and part two that full interview with byron will be part two and so please enjoy that interview um and um give him a little bit of remembrance but um we're happy to announce on lighter note uh one Henry Sludge went out of his way like he always does. The book is a fantastic guest. And so, Henry, if you wouldn't mind introducing to our Absolutely. friends on yeah, YouTube evening, and, everybody. On, and everywhere uh, else. Glad to, glad to be here. I want to welcome our guest tonight. It's Paul Woodedge of World War II TV, a very good friend of mine. Paul is a prolific YouTuber. He is a battlefield guide. He's a historian. He's an author, and he lives in Normandy, just a short drive from the D-Day beaches. And... I've got to say, I've watched many episodes of World War II TV, uh, in addition to the one that I was honored to be a guest on. But, uh, Paul, I love what you are doing for the, as you, you've got a word out there that I love to use now, the historiography of World War II. And I love what you do. I mean, you get granular with these things. You had these guests on, Saul David and John McManus, uh, Brian Dimitrovich. You know, you've got some fantastic content. And it's something I never get tired of, of watching. And I'm always talking it up to these guys. And I'm just super excited to have you here on What's the Scuttlebutt. Well, cheers. That's a, that's a pretty cool introduction. That was good. Yeah, no, it's um, really happy to be here. Thank you for taking your time and uh, coming out. No problem at all. So you, World War II TV, did that start for you, Paul, when covid shut everything down i mean it seems like i've heard yeah. you say that yeah no I, I was um i've been living in normandy for 20 years and i'm a guide my other half is a guide all my mates here are battlefield guides and covid just ripped everything out of the industry sure. um we knew that our industry was very dependent on american visitors but we didn't know how important it was until they stopped coming um mm -hmm. and we just had nothing to do and Broadly speaking, there's sort of two groups of people I know here in Normandy, those that have just kind of gone kind of hibernated and just try to do something else and, you know, maybe taken a second job or go back to something I did years ago and others who've carried on doing something else. They've been writing or speaking or lecturing. And in my case, I thought, OK, I, I know these people, these historians, what can I do? And I started with a, a, a live show on June the 6th, that was 2020. Um, so I did a 17 hour live stream. I just sat Lord. here on my computer for 17 hours with just Whoa. one or two pee breaks. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, um, historians dialed in every now and then and, and I had people out with their phones taking footage from the beaches and 
and it, it it was really ragged and really rough around the edges and you know that we lost the last few hours of it because youtube stopped recording it for really some reason. Mm-hmm. i didn't know youtube stopped after 12 hours or something they do anyway well i wonder what but it the, was fantastic uh, i wonder what the world record is for longest live stream well, if, if it's if it's more than I did, that I'm never gonna do it again. I mean, that's one of the things I would. <laughs> I, I'm ne- not gonna try that again. It was it was really great, but towards the end, I was just I don't know. I had a couple of guests on, so I, I was using friends at the end. I mean, it was most friends all the time, but I don't know what I was talking about the last hour or so. I had people say, "You were just on, you know, <laughs> all over the place." And, well, okay, fine, but it, yeah, it was an experience. And then I just put it into okay, let's do this on a more you know, kind of evening by evening basis. And and I get people telling me, oh, you planned it really well, this whole thing. I didn't plan anything. Everything was accidental. Everything was one thing led to something else. And, Very spontaneous. And yeah, now it feels like it's got a bit more planning. And now I plan. But mm-hmm. when I started a year and a half ago, I've done over 400 live streams. So I'm wow. doing pretty much three out, three out of every four days I'm doing something. How do you keep yeah. your content fresh? I mean, because, I mean, we do this once a week. I have another podcast, so I'm doing two podcasts twice a week. I mean, once a week, different content, though. Obviously, there's a lot, lot, a lot, a lot of World War II stuff, but one's knowledge base is only so big. And when you're doing three of them a week, um, unless you're having guests on who do, a, you know, who have expansive knowledge in other areas, how do you not burn through your content so quick? Well, that's, you said it yourself. I bring people on who know their subject, and yeah. and people mm-hmm. say, "Oh, you know." People call me Woody. You, you know a lot, Woody. I said, "Well, I know a bit. I know a bit about a lot of things, and I'm able to kind of host it and pretend, get away with pretending I know a lot." But I just bring, if I can, it sounds arrogant, the best of the best on. So if I'm tackling Eastern Front Week, for example, so you know, I bring on authors who have done five, six, seven books each, and. And I think, well, I can't get better than that. And it started right. off because I was I was lucky enough to have a few people that I knew for years. People like John McManus, you mentioned there, Alex Kershaw, James Holland, the British author. I'd known those guys for years. So I, I, I went with mates first. And I also went with Normandy first, my backyard, literally, as you sure. said, down 15 minutes drive from Omaha Beach. And then I broadened sideways into Eastern Front, Pacific, things like that as well. And you know, I get people saying, are you going to run out of ideas to do? Just to... Uh, Yesterday now, I was sitting on my Word document, putting up ideas. And Mm -hmm. for just one of my theme weeks, because I try and uh, break things down into sort of four or five shows in a theme, I had 20 ideas for one week. Now, few of them won't happen. Um, And that's, I must be thinking sort of six months, nine months ahead now. So, I mean, I've got so many ideas. And each each thing leads to something else. That's the thing. The the thing I've got to say, I mean, you you said it yourself, Woody. You are a, you're an ETO guy. You live in Normandy. That's your bread and butter. But when you step out of that box to go, okay, now I'm going to go PTO. I mean, the things that you're doing. I mean, the shows with was it Michael Veach with uh, Milne Bay and Carl James, yeah. Philip Bradley, the D Day show in New Guinea. I mean, love the show on Rabal, also with Philip Bradley. Yeah, you, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, God, yes, thank you. Please give me another show like this. I mean, you're taking it. We, we've all seen the 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 old tired archival footage many times, but you're taking it layers below that and getting granular with it with these authors who who, as you say, really know their stuff. And I mean, I think it's just driving a whole new direction for World War II for the consumption of this subject. 
Well, thank you. I mean, the thing is, it's not getting massive viewing numbers. I mean, it's still fairly early days with how YouTube works. But, right. you know, I'm talking about a subject for two hours. I mean, the show I did earlier today was about uh, armored development in the Spanish Civil War. So I actually kind of broke my own rule and I talked about something non-World War II. But the whole point mm -hmm. was it was about what lessons were learned. Right. And Pete, the guest, came on, and so we went through what was the Spanish Civil War, how was it fought, then a whole bit about the ta the battle and you know tanks going into a city and anti-tank gunfire, blah, blah, blah. And the last bit was the breakdown of what did each country learn from this? How did the Soviets take this and move it forward? The Germans, we even looked at what the Japanese army military had done. They weren't in participating, but they had people mm -hmm. reading reports. So only a certain type of person will go for two hours. I was interesting, you know, your introduction there to your friend who you lost living history. You know, you could you could spend, if you want, three hours looking at what kind of spoons were issued in 1941 yep. and what kind of spoons were issued in 1944 and find out the ratio of which pattern was what. Some people won't care, but some will. But it's whether or not the will who do care is a big enough audience, if you'd like, to generate things. So you know, I, I know full well because YouTube tells me that I should be doing 10 minute videos with it's, animations and explosions and, and covering everything. And it's just not what I want to do. I want to mm -hmm. I want to do deep dives. But it means you leave a few people behind because you're going deeper than they want to go. Well, two things. Or, one, early on in this podcast, I did an hour and a half long episode on the M1 helmet. So I understand what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> and two, when it comes to YouTube, there's just so much other competition quote unquote even if it's not just just to get likes people watch your video who never subscribe your channel it's insane because yeah. you know we yeah. we struggle with that too and you know not to go off but to put in perspective during covid i got on tiktok to see what my 13 year old daughter was up to and then i started posting videos i've been on tiktok for a year and a half i got ten thousand viewers subscribers I've been on YouTube forever and we're struggling to get to a thousand. So, I mean, I completely understand. It's just so weird. And off the air, I'll give you a, another option that you can um, actually copy your YouTube links to, to put up on a very similar website that actually we get more views on. It's called the Utah gun exchange uh, or YouTube. Okay. And basically they launched when YouTube demonetized videos about firearms. And so they launched it. And so basically every time I post a video on YouTube, I'll copy the link go to that website and it'll import it automatically with all the same hashtags. And I actually get more views over there because that demographics more into what we talk about. And so that's always an option too. Mm. But going back to what you're saying real quick, not to go too far back, you doing your first episode, you said you're doing a live stream and every once in a while a mate would call in or someone would go out. I don't think people realize how hard it is to sit in a room by yourself and maintain a conversation while you're waiting for your mates to call in or waiting for them to set up that live stream. I did radio for six years, and um, when I first started this podcast, I would only do an episode when I had a guest to talk to because it is so hard to sit in a room by yourself, carry on a conversation like you're schizophrenic with yourself, and make it sound like to the listening audience that you're talking to them, which is why I have a Jeff and a Henry, because it's just easier to do a show, and they have a lot more knowledge than I do. And so for you to do that straight out the gate as your first one and be able to do the traffic copying while waiting for people to come in. That's a huge testament to you and your knowledge base. Well, it's also because I, I, I'm, well, I, I still call myself a battlefield guide. I'm kind of hoping I won't have to go back into doing that except when I want to. But as a battlefield guide, you know, you're there 
in front of your audience for nine hours. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, right. you can keep their attention for all that time. Sure, you're you're driving during the course of it and you're stopping for lunch, but you've got to keep them interested and you've got to keep a variety of people interested because people think if you're a battlefield tour guide, every family you get is someone like Henry, you know, who's retracing their family's footsteps, who yeah. think this is the most incredible thing they've ever done. And there's a lot of that. But a lot of people are just taking it off a list. They're just sure they've done rome and they've done that what they're in venice and leaning tower piece and now they're doing normandy normandy particularly is the worst place the worst battlefield in the world for people who are just ticking it off a list and that's me being kind of negative and cynical and they are the people who pay our wages because we get one and a half million people come to normandy a year why do you think that is woody i mean what like because because you can't just drive through oh there they came ashore there boom now we've done it let's go on to paris or whatever is it just like I watched the show where you had one of your people out driving around. You went to some different churches. Uh, you had somebody who'd been in an armor unit. Sorry, but I can't remember exactly which show it was. But I, I mean, I was just like, this is incredible of uh, the, the level of detail that you're going into. But to, to my question, though, why do you think Normandy is like the worst battlefield for the people who just want to do a quick check the box? Because it's the one people can name, isn't it? You know, you go into a street in London, Sydney, Milwaukee, whatever, and say, name a battle from history. If they've got any battle in their head, yeah. D-Day is going to be one of them. Gettysburg, maybe, Iwo Jima, you know, and you start, you know, you said that you're very nice to compliment on shows like Milne Bay and uh, the, the we did one on the, Roman, the Romanian S and the SS fighting in the streets under Odessa. It's fairly niche stuff, but D-Day, everyone, I mean, D-Day has become a, a word in a language, you know, you're, you're reading right. the newspaper, a politician is facing their D-Day, you know, that, that people will make storming the beaches analogies. It's just part of our It's become brand. its own brand. Yeah. And of course we have to acknowledge the incredible power of Samuel Pryor, Ryan and Band of Brothers and the imagery, imagery of things like Bill Clinton in the, for the 50th walking down the beach, putting the stones there, which was set up, by the way, those stones were set there for him to find, and he put them in a cross shape. And then, and even and Reagan's speak the 10 years before, the 40th was important as well. Um, which, which brings it, you know, when you talk about historiography, we can now look at the historiography of visits to Normandy. We've got enough back history. We can look at how people were visiting 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and how they're visiting now, and look at the changes. So mm-hmm. Normandy is always going to be that kind of place, um, right. whether we like it or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I kind of have a, I kind of have a thought or an idea of what you're going to say. But prior to COVID hitting and basically knocking the wind out of the sails of the, of the battlefield guide industry, I probably would say the answer is going to be yes. But I'll let you answer. In your view, just probably because it happened on those shores, do you think the average Norman counterpart to american has more knowledge and interest in history of world war ii or are they just kind of over it because it's always been there in the background well they definitely have the interest um because you 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 know you can't live here without going past a cemetery on your way to work or past a tank or a monument i mean we haven't even counted the monuments here in normandy but it's thousands you know i mean it's Right. I drive past a Churchill, a Hetzer, and a Sherman every time I and a Hellcat every time I go to do my shopping. So that's just how it is here. Um, that isn't to say that everybody is mad keen interested in it. People know about it, but don't really care. Not, and that doesn't mean they don't care about the loss. Of, you know, they'll come out once a year and do their ceremony, but it's not. They don't live and breathe it. Sure. Um, but you know, you, they just know about it here. That's just how it is. 
b- back to the uh, when you got started on your World War II TV. Um, ap- up to now, are you just a one man crew, or do you got a producer and someone help you booking people, or are you just doing it all on your own? Oh me, oh me, yeah. Um, to do three uh, shows a week—that's tremendous. It's well, it's normally five a week, sometimes six. Wow. Um, occasionally Jeez. seven. Um, and they oh, and I always do them live because. I'm lazy and live means no editing because <laughs> you guys know, you know, you get stuck in editing hell. Oh yeah. Live is good because it stands and falls. When I press end stream, my only little job to do 10 minutes later is add the little um, uh, thumbnails to the mm-hmm. end of the video and, and check and monetize it, check the, check, check, all that kind of thing. But it's done. You know, occasionally I have a guest who doesn't want to go live and I record it yeah. and then I put it up, but it takes me four or five times longer that way. And I get that because I start, I start editing out the errs and slicking, making it a bit slicker. And then, I, and then I, and and it also loses something. People have got, I've got a community now who love jumping in and me, and making comments and saying, you know, uh, ask the historian this because they've got access to the. People and you involve that as you're yeah. watching the show. I mean, you're oh, so and so, you know, is asking the question about, you know, yeah. I mean, that's a constant thing. I see you doing. Yeah, and it's getting to the point where it's starting to get a bit unwieldy now. As I last six weeks, two months or so, I saw an increase in viewers, which is great, and I've been waiting for it, and it's going up now. But it's just meaning that the sidebar can get a little bit unruly because I'm, I'm, I'm hosting, so I'm thinking about what I'm saying next and what I'm going to ask next. I'm often moving the PowerPoint mm-hmm. uh, images on as well and loading up video, and I'm answering questions coming in. And getting rid of people, you know, the, the bots and things like that, the join. I hate to say so, this, but you're getting to the point where you're going to need a producer. It's just, it's going to happen sooner or later. Someone, the bots are the worst. Uh, the few times we've had people come in our live stream, it's just insanity, just nonsense they're posting. You got to try to do all the things you're doing, the traffic cop and to maintain the conversation while deleting obscene obscenities out of the chat. It's yeah. just, it's a lot of work. And uh, I expect I will need to find someone and it's, and that will be a real hurdle for me because mm-hmm. I'm, it's not. Control freak sounds like I'm some really weird person. I'm not. I just like knowing how I do things. Sure. Other half, I'm, I'm in France. And Magma, other half, who's also a tour guide, she says I could apply because I've got a business for someone to help with the video editing side of things and the social media and put things up on Instagram or whatever. But I wouldn't, I'd have to watch everything they do because I would say, well, I'm doing a show about Peleliu. Find me four Peleliu images, but I'd have to check that they find me four yep. Peleliu images, not two Peleliu ones, and one for me regime one because they've they've not, they don't know how to discern those things sure. there, and they they would they would spell armor the American way when I wanted it spelled the British way, whatever it would be. So I'd end up doing all the work anyway. I'd end up yeah. checking everything. So hmm. I might as well do it myself. And you're talking about you know using your skills as a battlefield guide to maintain that consistent information flow that's kind of the reasons why early on um i would interview reenactors and living historians because primary and living historians more than reenactors because living historians they set up their displays and jeff and i have often joke around that a living history event is kind of like a, a tech show or a car show where you're walking around and you have the people working for the car companies and they're regurgitating their well-practiced speech about their products and living historians are the same way. You got the guy set up in front of the Mm. communication tent. He has given a speech about the field phone 475 times. And so when they come on a podcast and you talk about that stuff, it minimizes the ands, the ums and the stuttering because they're just regurgitating that thing that they talk about every weekend on the summer anytime, anyhow. And so it really helps to present the information in a well-rehearsed, well-polished way. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And I like, in a weird paradoxical way, I like it sometimes when a few of my guests aren't as natural and slick as some others. Because if I bring on James Holland, for example, who is just the internationally renowned historian, does his own TV, he just mm -hmm. puts the show on. He's just Vegas in terms of his quality. And he's slick and, you know, he doesn't even have to prep for them. It just comes out. I had Adam yeah. Tooze on, the, the economist who wrote Wages of Destruction, one of my yes. favorite books about the Third Reich. He was just riffing. He was he was on his phone, walking around his living room. No preparation. Out of this, his head is his data coming out. And that's fantastic. But I do like having the the more amateur guy who just has spent 20 years manning a website or doing living history. I used to do living history myself years ago. I, I gave up. And, but, but, because, and maybe they're not as polished. Maybe, and I have to maybe tease a bit more out of them. And I have to be a bit more showy to kind of bring them in. And but I like that because it means people will contact me and they don't feel they have to be an experienced TV talking head to come and talk. I had an email today from uh, from someone who's a, a firefighter in the US who spent 20 years researching German firefighters putting nice. out bombing. And, and you could sense by his email he was a bit nervous about contacting me because he isn't Peter Caddick Adams. He's not John McManus. He's not got PhD after his name. He's not mm -hmm. lecturer at West Point or something. But I'm glad they will bother to contact me and feel that I will give them a chance. It's because some of the shows I do are not quite as slick as others because the guest is is knowledge first, um, interpreting, I can't get the word out, interpretation, interpretation skill second, if you know what I mean. And to mm. that point, then I'll let Henry get in here. Um, to that point, some of those guests that are so well rehearsed, and we've had this a few times, you pull that string and they start going. And then they hit a point you want to follow up, but they keep going and going and going. And so by the time they put that breath in, you almost got to circle the podcast back five minutes to get back to that point that you want to cover yeah. because they're so well rehearsed that they're just going five miles a minute. And you have to get to the point where you're a little bit controlling of it. Yeah. And you, 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 you know, you kind of jump in and say, I'm going to interrupt you now. And Peter Caddick Adams, who's a prolific historian, oh, yeah. will just talk. And 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 you know questions to him that you've got like it just doesn't matter he just he's just he, you know he's he's riffing now hey, and the, it's great the great Peter Caddick Adams moment was in the show after the bulge but where Mister Boar came in his dog yeah he's out for a walk here he is Mister Boar yeah, yeah that yeah. was a oh that was awesome I love and he that. throws in these things that you're not expecting because Peter Caddick I'm 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 working class English I wear a newsboy cap I grew up in Essex just outside of London I like rockabilly music and punk music and I'm I'm working class all the way Peter Caddick Adams wears tweed and and red corduroy trousers and patches and on his elbow shoes from London and Right. And he's posh, you know, he's, he's, he's from that part of the world. And, and yet he'll talk about reading on the show he did in the Ardennes week. He was talking about reading Whitney Houston's autobiography, which I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. And you, my you were like, mind like, blown. Whoa. Yeah. Mind blown. Cause you don't think, you think he's going to be sitting kind of with a pipe reading very right. learned logistical reports about the British army in 1943. And he's actually reading a Whitney Houston book. And, and when he did a fellow, friends of mine uh, fighting on film podcasts where they discuss war war movies. He did about the best oddball from Kelly's heroes impression I've ever heard. Now I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen that coming from Peter Caddick Adams that he would do a woof woof. Yeah. That's my other dog. Oh, that man, was brilliant, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have seen that coming from him either, but that's the, it's got the point now where these guys, even the big name historians, they like coming on my channel. And this sounds like I'm really showing off and stuff. Now, Damien Lewis, that's the 
author Damien Lewis, not Dick Winters Damien Lewis. Right. You know, the first time he did a show, I was contacting him via his agent and or, or his publicity assistant or something, and they were saying he's not going to give away all the plots of it, you know, the, the the details of his book because he doesn't want to damage his book sales and. By the third of appearance, it was he just tells all the story because he loves it, and 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 he. I got an email, I think, after the second show, saying he did two two PR gigs the same day. One was one of those generic. He went went on, you know, BBC Radio Four, and someone said, "So your book is about checks notes, uh, the SAS in 1944." And the audience, you know, the interviewer didn't know what they were talking about, and it was three minutes. And then he came on with me, and he can talk, and he will say things like, "You know." thing is you know what to ask Woody because you understand you know you understand the uniforms you understand the units and Sol David who you mentioned did the same thing he said you know I right. like coming on because you know you ask cool things and the conversation will go into slightly unpredictable um areas which is which is cool so um mm -hmm. yeah I enjoy it and it's it's it, it seems to be working quite well yeah, I've seen that with authors in the past, too. Once again, I worked in radio. And so in radio, the production house, they just want to get the name out there and get on the radio. And so the radio host will get what's called a one-sheet or have the name of the book, the name of the author, some titles, and two sentences. And it's a very stilted, very boring interview. And yeah. so a lot of times, especially when you first start a podcast or a channel and you're trying to book these guests and they don't know about you and they don't know about your podcast – they come on expecting that whole radio format with off the one sheeter, and then when you start diving in, you can after about a minute or two, you see them kind of relax and say, "Okay, I'm around someone who's like minded, and I can settle in, and we can go a little deeper." And next thing you know, you're 110 minutes into it, and you're like, "Okay, <laughs> we yeah. I guess we'll call it quits and we'll follow up." But yeah, um, it's definitely interesting to see when people come in with a kind of an expectation because they just don't know. And then you just see them kind of fall into it, which is always, well, fun. you know, yeah. I mean, that's a great point. It kind of seemed that way when John was on our show. Sure. He you didn't know, know first, us he's like, him. okay, guys, what do you want to talk about? And then he very quickly saw, Hey man, there, here are three guys, which I mean, John McManus obviously knew who my father was and all that, but he, he very quickly realized, man, here's three guys who have a passion for world war II history. They're well-read. You know, it didn't hurt that we certainly had read a number of his books, but and it just turned into this fantastic conversation. Yeah, and it's good. The, the downside I'm getting though is if it's someone like John McManus who comes on who's a mate, we can go a bit informal. And I forget sometimes that people will not just watch the show live, they'll go back and watch it again. They'll put all the automatically generated subtitles on and they'll maybe overanalyze a sentence. It happened with a show John did where, and I forget what. It was where John said something about putting the uh, European theatre as a priority over the Pacific theatre, and I would have done the same or something. He said, mm -hmm. and, and this view, the commentator said, "Would you really do that? Was is that really John's opinion?" And I was kind of trying to say, "Well, it was just a throwaway comment in a show." Right. I think John, that is John's honest opinion, but maybe he would have worded it slightly different, and I would have worded it slightly different. So people will overanalyze a little bit, mm -hmm. thinking that it's a highly scripted documentary and it's not a highly scripted documentary it's a live show where we're right. we're talking and we're engaging and we're dealing with live comments but on the whole people are really good and really really receptive to it but i feel if it gets a bit bigger and people perhaps don't know who i am or don't know who the guests are they will maybe kind of pick up things or oh, that was odd language you used there for that and it's sometimes the tonal shift can be odd you must have the same thing where you you're talking about death and then suddenly something kind of humorous comes up 
and it's like, oh, we've got to change tone now, like the yeah. like the radio, and you know, you play a wacky record, and then you go to the news where there's been a, a car wreck mm-hmm. in the town, or so. it's you've got to know how to kind of move that change and tonal change, and then bring it back again. But it, if I overthink it, it probably would would not work. It's just kind of go with your gut. I think is the idea with it. Mm-hmm. And back to that comment that the listener was picking apart. Um, to be honest, it, 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 I think in a at least in the living historian world, and we've we've actually said that same comment here, which is true. If you turn on a history channel back when they actually showed history, or you go somewhere that has a series of videos, up until the last five years, eighty nine point seven of them are ETO based. You might see a North mm-hmm. African video and a small handful of PTO. And so for the longest time, up until you know the Pacific came out in the last few years, most of the at least the production on TV that was readily available to anybody with a cable box, it was primarily ETO. And so a lot of people do have that feeling that up until recently, that mm. was where all the priority was. And so what he said was by no means out of balance. It's just someone tried to make no, it into exactly. something it's not. Right. But we're in a revolution now in that yeah. we are now, as consumers, assuming we can have some kind of contact with the creators. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was a kid watching World War II documentaries, you didn't think you'd ever be able to comment about why didn't you talk about this? But, yeah. you know, I get these long, sprawling, detail-laden comments where people, and I'm not sure whether they're kind of criticizing or complimenting, but they're just adding the stuff they know. They're saying, here's more shit on this, they say, <laughs> well, I find... that you may want, you I... know? And that's fantastic. And and it, the fact they feel they can be part of the process and, and, and it's that that kind of talent show thing is that you feel that you're part of it because you can vote you can vote your telephone call for your act you like it's participation led and i've also found talking to authors and things the covid revolution is they're finding that the audience who are reading their books isn't just the people they thought were reading their books there's a whole other demographic as well which they're now finding because their exposure to their audience the Brits, again, particularly, was they'd go to the Chelsea Literary Festival in London, where you meet the kind of people who go to the Chelsea Literary Festival, who are people who have handmade shoes that cost 500 quid, and, you know, and, oh, and that's the, the people they were meeting. And single mums from from Detroit are listening to their, their yeah. stuff and their podcasts as well, and that kind of thing. And they're realising, oh, there's a... The, the, the people reading their books is wider um, than they thought. And also, this connects with the fact that we're all of us you said about history when history channel used to show history <laughs> if we if we judged what we thought people know by what conventional tv gives us we think the world is full of idiots because yeah. they dumb everything down to such a point that they're reminding you that and the bad guys here folks are the germans and mm-hmm. we had these things they were green they were called tanks it's that kind of stuff yeah. and these brilliant talking heads go on and they're reduced to giving sound bites because no one's allowing them to give any detail and that's i think even the authors have realized, well, that must be what the viewership is like, because if that's what the big companies are making, they must know what they're doing. And then you realize with podcasts and my channel and other people's, that actually there's a huge level of knowledge out there. And those people out there really know their stuff. They know their uniforms, they know their equipment, and they know their battles, and they want it to be explored in a detailed way. It's so funny because the legacy media, they, they're they so stuck in their ways. Um, I, I've been out of radio for three years, but in the six years I worked there, um, the station flipped formats multiple times, but the talk show I produced always stuck around because those two guys have been on the same station since the late 90s. 
But it's so funny. They would hire these music consultants to come in and tell you what the audience wants to hear. And I said, well, there's no room for talk. It's like, really? Because there's like 300,000 podcasts out there and they're all talk-based. You're a music consultant. Obviously, you're going to say everybody wants to hear music. And like you said, and I'm sure Henry's experienced this and Jeff's experienced this, you'll, you'll be asked to come, whether it's a local news story or a radio segment, and they'll interview, for 20, interview you for 20 minutes and then they'll use 38 seconds of that entire interview on their mm. three-minute break going into the weather or whatever. And so, you know, it's definitely compressed and, and definitely dumbed down. Yeah, uh, my, my the big TV gig I got, conventional TV, was for D-Day 70. So, um, and I was... It was down to between, it was an American-made show, and John McManus has been it, Marty Morgan, various other people you'd know. And apparently it was down to me and a very well-known British historian who I haven't mentioned so far, and I got the gig because I was free and he wanted too much money. Um, and they sent the crew over to Normandy and they, they interviewed a German historian as well while we're here. And I was kind of excited about it because it was my, I'd, been, I'd done lots of TV work as a consultant behind the scenes, and I had the occasional kind of guiding the presenter through places in Normandy. But this was me, like I am now, facing the camera, responding to stuff. So I was kind of excited about it. And they booked me like six months in advance. And then a week before the recording, I got the answers to the questions I was supposed to be given sent to me. And I was like, it was like my world went, it was like, what? Don't I get to say what I think? No, you kind of got to stick to our already worked out script, and it was like, hmm. oh, that's <laughs> so because the guy asked balloon the, burst, and that's because the guy asking the question doesn't know anything on the topic, and so he's got to send you the pre thought out questions, otherwise he can't maintain that conversation. But I, I can get the questions, but in fact, I was given the answers. That was I was told what to, and in the end, they didn't use me that much because I wouldn't stick to it because they they wanted to. For example, when we we're talking about the fighting in land, they said. Like they, 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 because they let me record. They, they did a few things, kind of just me saying it, and then they said, "Oh no, do it more this way." And I was talking about, I don't know, I think something about engaging Stugs and Panzer, uh, Panzer and and French tank Marders and stuff. And they said, "You haven't mentioned tigers yet." So well, Americans don't come up against tigers for like the first two months of the Normandy campaign. It was all Stugs and SPGs and like, yeah, but our audience know tigers. Mm -hmm. I said, "Well, can't bring tigers in because there weren't any." So mm -hmm. you know. I'm going to say stood because that's what they were here. And and he said, you mentioned too many different towns. Can you just stick to San Lo? I said, well, San Lo and San Margolis, more, that's and, it. You know, I could go on about this, yeah. but, you know, and, and in the end, here I am making my own stuff now. And who cares what the conventional TV is doing? And indeed, historians are leaving conventional TV in their droves. A big, big World War II show just aired on Netflix recently, and some of the talking heads are already talking on Twitter saying, "That's it, no more talking head work like this." And if I can't be involved in the in the finished product, I'm not doing it anymore. No, no money is worth, you know, connecting yourself with something that isn't of the vision you thought it was going to be. So it's good, good for people like us because I think these people will be desperately banging down our doors to try and get on our content because they'll want to have a voice and share share what they actually know, not what they're told to say. Well, it's a good example of how we will consume World War II history. Yeah. Instead of just the stock archival footage and then interview with a couple of people, it's going to be people coming to the party who really know their stuff. People who can appreciate somebody like a Carl James or John McManus or Peter Caddick Adams. I mean, and who, and who are going to be familiar with their work. Yeah, no, definitely. And accepting the fact as we move forward, we're going to be getting our history from more than just one source. And, and the, the historians who dismiss 
video games and reenactment and comics and all those they're they're missing out you know i mean i'm i'm interesting about living history at the top of the show there i'm doing a week about living history reenactment and of all the weeks i've done it will be the most controversial because historians fall in two distinct categories when it comes to reenactment those that think it's quite cool and those that think it's a disgraceful disrespectful you know and I'm going to try and balance and fight my way through that to kind of offer different ideas on it. And reenactors re are very wary to be part of something because they get, they've done stuff in the past where they've been made fools of. And so that, but I thought, well, it needs to be done because as many people will have access, one of those big events, the D-Day one in, is it in Ohio? You yeah, Connie at Ohio. More people will go to that than will buy a book by a mainstream historian because not not your James Holland's your John McManus's but your regular kind of in Britain pen and sword kind of military book if people knew how few copies of those books were printed in the first run they would yeah. be really really surprised it's barely mm -hmm. over a thousand most of these things there and if they sell them all in the first year they've done really well but a reenactment event 20,000 people might go 50,000 people might go to a big one so and then TV a wide audience again so it, that's where people are going to get in their history from and that's where that that's going to be their vote their first entry to understanding what the war was it might be at those kind of parades they do in a you know in a town for memorial day or something where a half track goes by that might be for joe blogs on the street there the first time someone has tried to bring world war ii to him um movies on tv as well but that will be that chat he has with the guy who's driving the half track that will make or break whether he's got interest in World War II. Do you think people, and I, I know, I hope what you'll say, because I feel pretty strongly about this, and I'd be interested in knowing Jeff and Don's thoughts on it too, but do you think that people will continue to read books? Because I, I had a conversation with aviation historian Bruce Gamble, a friend of mine, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> I asked him, I've read several of his books. I, he wrote what I think is the best book that's ever been written on VMF 214, The Black Sheep. And I asked him, are you working on anything new? And he, this is all via email. And he, he said, well, I've, I've pitched a book. Numbers don't look good from what my, my agents tell me. So I'm kind of thinking about doing some video stuff, you know, probably Paul, probably Woody can like what you're doing. Uh, but I said to him, I said, Bruce, I implore you don't ever stop wanting to write a book because I said for, for, and we, we actually talked about your show. And I said, you look at the way people consume the historiography of World War II now, there's got to be a, a, a subject matter expert, a guy who's written a book as part of that show, I think, to, to really round it out. So I, I was imploring him to not give up on the idea of writing, you know, long, long form narrative books. And so, I mean, I, I want to believe that there will always be a place, you know, certainly what we're doing here and what you do and, and, you know, all of these is what NFL does, you know, th that's going to yeah. be a huge way that we consume history. But I really hope, fervently hope there's always going to be that guy writing the book who can appear on those shows and be part of it. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think, I think we will still read books. Yeah. But I think the people who are writing books will have to go forward on an Eisenhower broad front strategy of accepting if they're doing books, they'll have to do a blog and use social media and go on YouTube and do other things as well, because writing a book alone, the problem is you won't get out there. You won't, it, it, right. it, it, there's no point you doing a book 
if no one reads it and and some of the publishers will have to up their game as well one of my guests last week on the rise of the third reich helen roche did a fantastic book about the third reich schools the napolers they called them i watched it today yeah, yeah and you know her book was published by a university and it's about a hundred dollars because it's hardback who's gonna buy it nobody she knows sure. this herself you know we're trying to get her enough people saying that they would get a paperback edition so we can actually as my channel in a small way influence her publisher so the publisher go actually let's do a a 20 dollar paperback version maybe with not the illustrations in because you can maybe if you don't want to put the photos in you can have a link to the website where the photos are that's why i think that it'll be moving on that kind of force so some someone like bruce gamble for example he may do the book but then he'll say okay but here's here's the first part of the course is in the, uh, for you to learn this is in the book but also here's the website where the extra materials are here's the clips to the where you can see the footage of the whatever it is the the avengers taken off the deck of so-and-so's and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff so that that's how it'll work because there will be people, my own stepdaughters, including them, their primary use of, of getting way of getting information is not books. It's it's right. the internet and and they're very and video games. So books will have to be part of it, but they will have to be part of everything. And 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 the the old kind of the guy who sits in his office doing a book, not meeting anybody, submitting it to his publisher, who churn it out once every year. That's going to change. That is definitely not going to be the way forward. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a bit it's a yes and a no to your to your question. Yeah, but <clears throat> what it says to me and what I see with younger people, you know, what I see through my sons, uh, my thirteen year old, I really think I don't think the passion for World War Two is going anywhere. I think it's solid. Yeah, I think it's there. And the you know I see that with the people who watch your show, the people that enjoy our podcast. I mean, I think there is going to be that desire and that interest for for a connection to world war two Th thoughts Absolutely. jeff but i say it's going to be via a different set of media and you know we we've all got to admit that the way we consumed it when we were young won't be the way people consumed it now and in the future we'll keep up with how people are consuming the information there was a survey on twitter i think last week and lectures and learning at university is now the bottom of how people learn about the past top is is um uh a tv and film and then it's social media and uh, mm -hmm. it comes next and you know youtube my kind of stuff is about halfway down the list which is at least i'm not at the bottom but you know books <laughs> are not going to be the primary we primary way forward unless they're part of this 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 over overarching thing and it's what you know, i get very frustrated when i hear from historian friends who they get contacted by a video game manufacturer and they say i didn't even respond to the email and i go well why not you know because mm -hmm. they're going to make this game anyway. So if you can get involved, as John McManus has got involved in, in video games, for example, you know, it's not lowering yourself. It's not that you're, you know, no, no one's going to think you're not a proper historian if you're working on a right. video game. But it, you you can maybe help influence how they portray things. Well, it broadens like, the outreach. I mean, look at Marty yeah. Morgan, you yeah. know, with what he does. Jeff. Exactly. So, you know, we're... We're hogging the conversation now, but <laughs> nah, Jeff, I keep seeing Jeff lean and he wants to jump in. What's your thoughts on the whole book I'm thing, sorry. Jeff? I know I forgot I was here. Uh, no, <laughs> hey, you know we, we we take turns. This this is this is Henry's guest, so I'm really enjoying being a listener for this one more than more than a co-host. But hey, when you had Patton on, I kept my mouth shut. So right, so I, I, I'm returning the favor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll be quiet. That's no, all good. 
but on the so, books, no, yeah. but really, so what, I, what I'm taking out of this conversation, is you guys are saying what's exactly in, in my head. I mean, if we go back, uh, you know, 80, 90 years to when the kids were reading Zane Gray, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. they've got a TV in their living room and they're laying there with their little 45 and their hat on watching Hopalong Cassidy and, and Clint Walker and John Wayne. That didn't mean that they put the books down. But it was just another way for them to relive what they're wanting to read about in the Old West. So now we're finding ourselves in now I think it's a trifecta. Uh, You got to have the book. You got to be able to reach on the shelf and and pull it out. And I think uh, Adam Makos, an author we haven't really mentioned on this particular episode yet, but he's doing just that. You know, and Henry knows when you're reading Spearhead, he said, oh, at the bottom of the page, not at the end, at the bottom of the page, author's note. You can go to my website and see exactly this conversation that we had filmed. You know, yeah. you can see this. Uh, so that's a great way to do it. So we're gonna have we're gonna have books. You got to have some kind of video, audio, you know, that type uh, of you know learning because it's just it enhances what the book can't do. You you can't see it, you can't hear it. Um, and then I think that the third part of the trifecta, and you know, to me maybe the most important part because it's the one that the kids are going to remember is that living history aspect. Um, you know, Paul, you, you said it exactly right. When, when, if a half track comes down the road, you know, in a parade, you know, a kid's going to remember that they're not going to remember the first time they read about something or the first time they maybe saw it behind glass, but they're going to remember the first time they held it, you know? So if we have, if we can have that, that tactile part of history available, um, to me, it's 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 a win-win, and, and I know you know that may be an abstract way of looking at it. like oh you know video games you know kids don't read books anymore they play video games. Well, maybe they're playing video games about guys storming the beach of Paleloo, and now they know who you know people like you know Henry's dad are because they wouldn't be exposed. We're we're, we're finding other avenues to get them there uh, to where they're going to get interested, and maybe they will do their own research and Google something, and then somebody's book will eventually come up. So, um, I, the, you know, there's no such thing. They say good publicity or bad publicity is still publicity. Uh, any way that we can read, especially our youth, with history, do it. And like you said, you know, it, it, they're going to make the video game anyway. You might as well be the guy that said, hey, this isn't right. They didn't have those there. It needs to be this. Instead of being the guy that, that's silly. They got that wrong. Well, you had your chance to fix it. And, and that's what I personally strive for is being able to be involved in as much ways as I can to make sure that, number one, it's done right. And, and number two, that it's as accessible as possible. It's not just go to your public library anymore, you know. So I think it's all great things. Paul, I think what you're doing is amazing. I haven't seen your show, but I will. Um, and, and I've been on the other end of, of, of doing webinars with guys like John McManus and Rich Frank. And it's this very, you know, stern, everything's got to be perfect. The slideshow needs to work and everything's scripted. And it was great because, yeah, when we had uh, uh, John McManus a few episodes ago, it was like, hey, we're four guys that love World War II. You wear a T-shirt. It's cool. <laughs> Let's yeah. just talk World War II. And we give those listeners the opportunity like, wow, I, I you know. Because like you said, when you were a kid, you never dreamed that you would ever, you know, social media where you could send Tom Hanks a message. Like who thought yeah. that would ever, you know, seriously, like they, they were, you know, you were lucky to get an autograph from a sports player, you know, like, and that's a piece of, that's a piece of them. But now we're so connected 
um, and everybody has an opinion to throw out there. Um, but when it's just humans being humans and, you know, yeah, you may not say exactly how you wanted to say it if it was scripted, but that's the, that's the beauty of it. History, mm. history's not going to change, but how we interpret it seems to always change and hopefully improve. So, uh, yeah. I, I love you, what you're doing. But you said something cool about John McManus there, because to me, as a viewer of these things, it's cool to know that John McManus watches crappy war films like the rest of us, <laughs> yep. because th there's yeah. the, the, the gatekeepers of history, the proper people who write the books, who perhaps you know, a, a standard route kind of going is, is your PhD thesis then becomes your first book that immediately to people out there who know their stuff sounds like, well, I haven't got that. I don't have that opportunity. And it's presented, it's putting a gap between you as an amateur enthusiast for this and the so-called professional people then you realize that people like john mcmanus and james holland and these guys richard frank they watch war films as well that they will watch and go oh, look he's got the wrong pattern leggings on or look his boots you know that, mm -hmm. that me oh but i do that people think i that i do it, it creates that that connection there and to you know to henry's question about will we be reading books in some ways the gatekeepers of the the academic publishing world will have to understand i think that things like living history comic book writing are as valid an interpretation and way of explaining world war ii as these academic books I mean, one of my big favorite writers is garth ennis the comic writer does the boys punisher and does, does judge dread his world war ii graphic novel comics are amazing the level of, info, of detail in them in terms of the battles and how things were and he tackles eastern front and and the weirder grind you know he done stuff on the spanish civil war but he's not going to get he'll get invitations to the big comic-con things because that's what he does but he wouldn't get inv invited to the the world war ii history stuff because they would be a, a, an understanding but he's a comic book writer now the fact is he may be engaging way more people and connecting to people and how people giving teenagers whoever reads his world war ii comics i don't know the night witches and uh, uh, uh the other ones you know the that page turning ability, that wanting to know what happens next, because there's no point historians producing these stuffy books that are, that are inaccessible. I get them sent to me, mercifully very few, that they're just unreadable, yeah. some of these things. Yeah, that you just go, I, I, can't, I can't be bothered to invest time in my life to reading this because I'm on page 10 and I'm bored already because you're 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 aiming at some highbrow peer group type impressing us with your knowledge i want to know about guys running up beaches and how they felt and how that impact my life today and and they're not doing that and that's a most of them aren't like that but a few of them are like that it's just very frustrating well no absolutely and i, and I see it firsthand with with my children too you know like, like henry i've got a i've got a 15 year old son that just lives eat and breathes world war ii he's He's got a German uh, bunker that he's built here on the ranch that him and his buddies are been hiding out at 11 o'clock last night, you know, uh, making videos. And they do. They make their they produce their own little videos and, and little movies. I mean, my son's writing a script right now about the irony of war between an American and a German soldier that paths crossed twice uh, during World War Two. These two young kids, uh, you know, that that um, the irony of war has has kind of blended them together. And he, he's writing the script. He's. He's filming it, you know, mostly here on our ranch. And, you know, it's, it blows me away. Um, wow. Like Henry said, the, the interest is there and we want to, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud to, 
you know, be of the generation that, that was, you know, at least not necessarily old enough to really personally know World War II veterans. You know, when I think of a World War II veteran, he's 70 years old, you know, for, for me. I, I'm a kid that grew up in the 80s and 90s going to air shows. They were old guys, you know, they were still old guys, but they were now my, my dad's age. So I see, wow, they were actually yeah, quite young and, and, and energetic and they had a lot of life left in them. Um, and, and it's a shame that for like my children, uh, we just uh, we just saw a good World War II friend, buddy of ours, for the last time on on New Year's Day. We visited him in the hospital before before he passed. You know, he was 97. You know, that's a World War II vet to my son. It's a 97 year old, not not a 70 75 year old. So we know they're slipping past. But if we can keep them, like I said, keep them engaged in some way with comic books or with any anything that keeps their memory alive, because man. We can't let it go. Yeah, we, we can't. We, we can't let it just fade off into into the annals of history. And it's it's a dusty book on a shelf somewhere. And you know, there's just there was just too much given, and and, and too much blood and guts for uh, for it to slip away. And um, but I think we are as much as we like to complain about the present and all these newfangled things. That's I don't think that's different in any time in history. Yeah. You know. Right. Uh, that new fangled wheel those guys got over there you know <laughs> i mean it's not it is we're, we're, we're fickle like that but i think we're pretty fortunate in the time frame that we live in right now um because i would much rather you know be in the 2020s uh than in the 1920s um that that, that was a tough you know the, our greatest generation's parents and what they had to endure um uh, I, i'd much rather be where we're at now with all the trials and tribulations that we're going through uh, to live on the on the on the coattails of the greatest generation, and to still be able to walk up and thank them and shake their hand, I don't know if it gets any better than that. Yeah, no. I mean, it's interesting, you know, taking off that living in Normandy as I do. We were talking about my other half of me yesterday or, uh, about the fact we're going to have to go across that hurdle of the not the veterans not being here the 80th anniversary is is fast looming and there i guess there'll be a couple of veterans here for that but there won't be for the 85th and there definitely won't be for the 90th and how will that impact um everything and i think there'll be positives and negatives I, i'm with you jeff in, in a weird way young people seeing really really old guys under blankets in wheelchairs isn't helping them understand that no. the men who fought World War II were 19 years and 20 years old. You'd maybe need to see the veteran in the wheelchair and reenactors who are more likely to be the nearer the right age. Yeah, the 30 and 40 year olds. <laughs> tend to be a bit older, but you know, to kind of connect the dots. So you go, hang on, they, they're old now, but they weren't old then. And it's, it's like, at what point are we gonna stop interviewing the World War II generation as well? Because you know, uh, uh, this is a big, another big hot topic. Uh, uh, you know, at what point do do personal testimonies and memory changes and things? At what point is there any value in during a ninety nine? I mean, some of them sure they're as sharp as attack, but you know, handing over to the historians who've now got the historiography you can look back and say this veteran got it right. This veteran maybe over the years his story got a little bit woolly around the edges, and because for every every Eugene Sledge, there's someone who didn't kind of quite write it in that same way. And, and so there's lots of hurdles we've got to face, not there's the hurdles of how we're going to consume our story. And there's a hurdle about how we're going to deal with the passing of that greatest generation, which is, is going to be, 
provide us some positives and some negatives and you know marty morgan who you know you know mutual friend of ours I mean, marty's kind of almost looking forward to the era when there are no veterans there that doesn't mean you're going to not miss all the friends you've made over the years but because we can kind of click clean the slate and say let's start again let's start again and now look at which testimonies are are valuable and which ones perhaps aren't you know and mm -hmm. and be more discerning about it you know i i get lots of emails people saying why don't you interview world war ii more world war ii veterans on your channel i've done i think four or something over the year it's hard because to find them lucid and it's been done by other people better than me and and i i don't feel that's what i want to do i don't it's it's been done it's uh it's it's not for me real quick on the book thing um obviously we need books and a lot of the publishing houses they will put an audio version of that book out at the same time but i've said this on the podcast too fiction books fine whatever you want to self-publish you want a digital format history books to me is of utmost importance we need hard copy because digital mm -hmm. anything's too easy to erase to edit um, not to go too down the mire, but we here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, and actually any any Facebook account associated with mine, we have 11 more days left of our Facebook jail because we had the audacity to post a photo of an author who was on our show in his German uniform, and I didn't censor out the swastika. Uh, right, and yeah. so because, yeah. because we're not an extremist group using that photo to get people to join our insanity, because we're a World War II history page and we posted a picture of a German in a uniform, the Internet is censoring it. So it, to me, it's of a, utmost important that authors continue to put out hard copy of these history books so that they can't be censored in that way. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're saying, the video games, they're going to make them anyhow. Um, as the way I see it, your kid going to play the game. And as we know, with social media, their, their devices are monitoring them, watching them. And so if they're on these Facebook groups or whatever about Call of Duty, uh, Google's going to sell that information. And as they're streaming through the old internet or on Instagram, World War II based themed stuff are going to pop up. And they might stop and say, hey, wait a minute. That looks like the guy I played on that video game. And out of 100 of them, maybe four will actually start researching and getting into World War II. And so definitely the games, you know, and we see that in the living history world. Oh, the bandwagon of brothers. It's like, wait a minute. We're supposed to be here <laughs> trying to get people to remember World War II. And the one series on HBO before the Pacific came out that did a fantastic job of introducing World War II to a bunch of people who had no interest in it, who basically did what you claim and you're trying to do. Now you refer to it as bandwagon of brothers. It's like, I don't get it. It's like mm -hmm. anything that gets our normal counterparts, whether it's them flipping through the TV and stopping on the History Channel back when they played History and saying, wait a minute, that looks like from the scene from the movie. And if they sit there and watch it for 20 minutes, whereas four weeks ago they wouldn't have, to me, it's a bonus. It's a win. Yeah. I think to, uh, to balance that, though, I think we'll have to hope that the next generations have the ability to discern what's good and what's bad. You yeah. Know? And that's that's the... That's the thing. We we know from a living history about we 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 can recognize good living history and we can recognize bad reenactment and we can see the difference. But the, some people can't. And the same with history as well. Same with books. Same with YouTube yep. channels. It's that about that thing. And interesting about living history because I I live in where living history is the worst and the best at the same time because Normandy for the anniversaries draws everybody. And I've seen some sites that just, you know, my, uh, no, my eyes cry with the pain of what, what, I see. what would be that? Is it inaccuracy in the portrayal of the equipment or 
just the attitude, overall attitude, just the just the beards and aviator and, glasses, and aviator glasses, and just not actually showing respect. Is and that's I sound like my dad now, but that understanding that for me, the minute you put a uniform on, you are you mm. owe some kind of debt to those people who wore it. And sure, we can't all the you know, reenactors can't all be twenty three with a thirty two inch waist. That's sure. that's an impossible sure. goal to reach. You can still be bigger or, or older, but do it with the right weight. It's the lack of it's a lack of care. And in Normandy, you know, you're, you're literally putting these uniforms on where the people who wore those uniforms originally actually died. You know, you're literally going to the same places. And if that that should elevate people's level of responsibility and they just don't care. I mean, I say there's lots of good living history. And I know people think, oh, Woody doesn't like living history. I do like good living history, but I hate, mm -hmm. I abhor bad living history. And I'm not averse to going up and telling people they are being utter, utter, utter. And I will use some very naughty words because it just offends me now. It just, mm -hmm. and, and I say, you're not doing anybody any favors, at least of all yourselves, because these historians I'm trying to engage with, trying to come on and talk about reenactment, they've all seen this stuff as mm -hmm. well. And the ones and that we've already lost those. I don't think we're going to convert those historians to appreciate living history because they've made their decisions. They've seen such crap. They, mm -hmm. But the next generation of historians to go about this kind of broad front strategy, hopefully they will see the best of what's going on and they'll see some of these interpretive um, displays at museums or events and things. Actually, you know, living history can work as part of I'm, I've been to some history festivals where a historian is talking and there'll be a reenactors there walking about on stage showing the uniforms they're wearing. It's kind of a double act that it's, it's helping to visually illustrate what they're talking about and and they can see the benefits from both sides but a lot of it is so so <laughs> poor here and yeah. i you know i <clears throat> i i don't do it so much now because i get so angry in my blood <laughs> pressure but i used to on facebook around june post you know the reenactor idiot of the day photos and people be wait brian dimitrovich would be waiting for me to <laughs> post you know some idiot and and i stopped doing it now because it just became a sport it yeah became, these it, are the guys with the beard the uniform is three sizes too big they're wearing sneakers they're you know they put on the bare metal they got their cell phone holster on their hip it's just it's bad it's it's something to do with the attitude it's, it, yeah. it, it is the gear but it's the way they they stand wanting themselves to be the center of attention and look at me look at me which is that that that's that's what i don't like it's the that you know why why I mean, there's, there's times you should be looking. I mean, I, when I used to do mostly British living history, a bit of American, 84th Division, Rail Spitters was the American unit I did, but um, mostly British, first day ever reconnaissance squadron at Arnhem. And we were asked to you know, parade the, the, the standard at the annual veterans reunion and things like that. So we were part of, of, of working with the veterans. Um, and that was really cool. And, and they said, no, you, can, you, you be at the front with your uniform. And we go, no, no, you be at the front. We'll be beside you or behind you. But we'd balance it there but yeah no, normandy and living history and reenactment is just uh it's 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 you could do a special on that one day about you know because whatever you think you've seen i've seen it worse i've seen it <laughs> way worse and and you know um shocking sometimes shocking yeah i'll show up events and it's like why didn't you shave because beards are in style well you'll grow it back in three days just you know you put in all the time energy and effort make sure you have the right uniform and then Oh, I want to. I can't bother to shave for three days. So it's like, come on. 
It's just minor stuff. It just drives everybody nuts. Real quick. Uh, uh, they, they do have the photo, of course. They always have that one example. They've always got that. But here's a photo from New Guinea in 1943 with a guy who had just what I've got. And you go, yeah, okay, Yeah, sure. except for yeah, his fine. uniform's dirty and full of holes, and yours is brand new, clean, and crisp, and straight out of an Amazon box. Yeah. So if you have yeah, access no. to a clean uniform, you have access to a razor. Real quick, I'm curious. Uh, when did you When did you move to Normandy? And, and get involved in all this, not to go too uh, far back. So 21 years ago. Wow. Um, yeah. So did you and, move uh, there primarily for the mission of getting into battlefield guides, or did you just get there for a different reason and fall into this? I'll just say yes, but it was more of a kind of a, again, I didn't really have a plan. It was like, at the time, I was like, I'm bored with what I was doing. Normandy and, and sounds fun. <laughs> kind of i've <laughs> been coming here since i was 12 years old and i thought i'll better do something there because i've done work voluntary work in museums i've done a bit of tour uh, tour guiding done some work as a film extra i was in semi bright run things like that as an extra all those kind of things and i thought i'll better find something and and in the end i did and i found founded my own company i had staff working for me but again when i look back on it it looks like it was more planned than it actually was it was much more random but you know it yeah it, so far most things i've done have ended up working out okay so it's yeah got a, got a good good um kind of um sixth sense or something i suppose before we wrap it up do you have any um plugs you want to get in there you got any uh, events coming up or anything you want to shine some light on Nope, specifically. I mean, we're just we're carrying on plugging away on World War Two TV. So this week we're in the middle of armored actions. So uh, we were Spanish Civil War today. Uh, tomorrow we're, we're Third Armored Division, the Battle of Bulge with uh, Daniel Bolger, retired American general. Then we got Prit Butar talking about the Sixth Panzer um, uh, Group in, in in Ukraine, and then we've got Australians, we've got Stuart tanks in New Guinea, and then the week after that got some random shows. We're doing some stuff about the anniversaries of Singapore because this year where last year I wasn't always tying in with anniversaries. This year I'm thinking, okay, it's the 80th of the 42 events. So I'm trying to tie in. Nice. So uh, Operation, uh, the, the, the Steal the Radar at Bruneval, Operation Biting, I'm covering that. I'm covering the fall of Singapore on the anniversary, covering the the invasion of, of Madagascar on the anniversary this year. So a whole lot of things where kind of on the day, 80 years on, on comes this story and we're talking about the event that was happening then. So that's kind of, yeah, just, Go to my YouTube channel and and, and and look at what I'm doing. I keep I because I do everything live, I only ever have about two weeks worth of shows that are future listed. And then I, I kind of add each week as I get to towards it. But I've I've got shows planned now. Pretty much all my weeks are planned till May, June, nice. maybe. So lots of stuff coming up. Jeff, you? Uh well, we're just plugging along in my little museum and, and our renovations. I look forward to showing that off and and uh, and and our air show coming up in in March. And uh, I just wanted to do a, a quick mention on on a book um, that I'm just about through with. I try to have one done, you know, before we ha have an episode to talk about a book. And this one's it's not much to look at. In fact, I don't even have it next to me. It's just called Air Gunner. It's a book I picked up years ago just because it's a first edition print it, it was it was printed in 1944 so the, the war is still going on and it's it's by none other than sergeant andy rooney that wow. that penned this yeah. book. Mm. and uh it is i mean i i understand that reaction it's not it's not the uh the the, the sarcastic andy rooney you may expect or, or, or negative in any way you know he was quite a a comedic kind of guy he was on kind of comedy but no, this was this is a really it's this is dedicated to 
air gunners. This has nothing to do with pilots or bombardiers. This is just the gunners. And it's really, really well done. And I'll, I'll share just a real quick story, something that I learned, um, the term paddle feet. I had never heard of all the stuff I've read about the Air Corps, the bombing campaign. I've never heard the term paddle feet. And it, it <laughs> basically translates to today's, uh, you know, if you call somebody a pogue, a uh, person other than a grunt, you know, or, or a remph that we use in the Army, rear, a rear echelon, you can finish the rest. Uh, basically guys that aren't on the front lines. So, and I don't know if it was army-wide or if it was just kind of for the Air Corps, these bomber bases, but there was a story about a, a waste gunner that just quit on his ninth mission. He just, he was flak happy. He just simply couldn't quit. I mean, he couldn't do it anymore. And it was something that happened on the mission before, and it just kind of caught up with him in the air during this ninth mission. And he just swore to God, if, the, if this airplane lands, he's never getting in the air again. So he does, and of course, the Air Corps goes to the proper channel. He was a good guy, you know, he'd done a lot of stuff, had some kills, but they had to ground them. The Air Force had to ground them. The very next mission, his aircraft goes out with a brand new left waist gunner to replace him, and it doesn't come back. And naturally, uh, he wanted to go back into the air. Sorry, you know, you had had your chance. Uh, But the interesting thing about it was that the whole crew thought that he, you know, we're all going through the same stuff, man. We all see this and you're going to quit. You're going to leave us after nine missions. But then when one of the paddle feet caught wind, now all of a sudden his tail gunner, you know, stood up for him because somebody that's never been in the air is trying to, you know, kind of dog on him. So I thought it was interesting. And that, you know, that's stuff that happens in, in, in today's military, you know, the guys that are next to you, we can jack with you a little more than somebody who's never been there. Um, but it's, it's really interesting. So each chapter is a little bit different about it. And anyway, he covers uh, all these guys. Some some are actual, you know, uses actual names. Some he says, oh, these aren't the real names, but these are the real stories. And it's just interesting. It's just a really neat look. It gets you right inside the Quonset hut with these waist gunners and tail gunners and, and ball turret gunners uh, in, in B-17s and 24. So if, you, if you're looking for something like that, if that's your thing, Air Gunner by Sergeant Andy Rooney. I'll have to check that out. What about you, Henry? As far as books, I finished um, Sherrod's book or Robert Sherrod's book, History of USMC Aviation in World War II. And I just started uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison's uh, Coral Sea Midway and Submarine Actions. You got any appearances or anything you need to get out there? Um, Yeah, I think there's another We Happy Few 506 coming up with Layton and Matt Leach. Um, They want to do a Peleliu show, a Zoom show. And then they want to have me on their podcast. So we, with my wife's father passing away earlier this week, we got kind of messed up on when we were going to do that. Sure. But that'll be coming up. And Woody, I think you're you're having me back on your show soon at some point. Yeah, we're going to take, take, go do your father's uh, footsteps across Peleliu. That'll be good. A um, lot of great feedback about your first experience. So yeah, first appearance that that that's coming up. And I, I love all this um, this networking and. You know, I know Leighton and Matt. I've had beers with Matt in Normandy, and, and yeah. I love I love the connections. And uh, incidentally, down the road for me in Normandy is a chateau that was used by the press corps, and Andy Rooney's signature is on the wall there. Uh, so I've I've stood cool. beside his signature on the wall there. Yeah, it's wonderful how all these stories um combine. 
Well, I think it's going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. <laughs> I would be remiss. We reminded everybody last week, but uh, Jeff so vehemently demanded that we start an Instagram page for the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. So you can find us on Instagram at, at WTSP World War II. And Jeff and I have been trying to manage that, but there's some technical nonsense going on in the background we won't get into. And as always, if you really like the show and want to support what we're doing, do us two favors. One, head over to YouTube.com and subscribe to the Digital 410. You can watch all of our live stream and plus see all the videos we put up and Furthermore, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com and click on that Patreon link. Sign up for Patreon. It only costs you a dollar a month. If you kind of like us, if you like us, like us. Selling the old episode of The Wonder Years. If you like us, like us, sign up for the OG5 plan, which is $3.50 a month. And if you effing love us, choose the long arm deep pocket plan at $7.50 a month. And after month number two, you will find yourself getting a message from yours truly asking you what size shirt you want, what kind of shirt you want, and we will hook you guys up. But uh, for myself, Jeff, Henry, and Paul, we want to thank each and every one of you for your uh, continued interest in World War II, because without you, well, we'd all just be crazy guys sitting in a room talking about stuff no one wants to hear about. So until next week, thank each and every one of you, and we will talk to you all soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>